Welcome to Season 4 of Business Book Talk. I'm your host, Bob Garlick. This year, we have even more great books to help you excel in business and life. You can search for book topics and themes at businessbooktalk.com or subscribe using your smartphone for great content on the go. Hey everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got a very interesting book in front of me, The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist by Christine Bader. Christine, when girl meets oil in brackets. That's what you got in the in the cover. So yeah, this is all about you and your um, emergence into the oil industry and, and the reaction you had from it and, and uh, basically quite a wild ride. That's right, Bob, it is. And thanks for having me on. I, I should say that while it is structured around my story, I, I was sure to weave in stories and reflections from lots of other people doing similar work. The people who are pushing for safer and more responsible practices deep inside the world's biggest companies because I wanted to make it personal. I wanted to make it a personal journey, but I also wanted to show that the challenges that I faced, the ups and downs of doing this work are actually not unique, that a lot of other people, a lot of other companies are facing similar challenges. So that's really why I wanted to write the book, although it is structured around my story. Well, let's just jump right to a a major theme. Do you think safety has anything to do with budgets in the sense that we don't have enough money to be safe, which is I'm I'm sure nobody would say something like that. But you know what I'm saying is because people are going and saying, hey, you know, we've got some budget restraints. Where can we cut some corners? And then you kind of get into this perfect storm situation. Or is it more um, that these people that are vanguarding for a – a safer work environment and a safer reality for many, many people just aren't getting the message across? What what do you think? Bob, that's a great question, and I like that you're cutting right to the heart of it. I think there are a few issues at play here. I think one of them, one of the themes that came out of my story and of the interviews I did with others is that nobody gets rewarded for something that doesn't happen, right? So the corporate idealists who I interviewed, a lot of them are making the case to spend money to better protect workers and communities and the environment. But it's really hard to say, okay, if we spend this much money now, we'll save this much money later or we'll prevent these disasters from occurring. It's really hard to say that. And part of, I think, the frustration of doing this work is that if you do your job well, nothing goes wrong. And then people start to say, well, do we really need to spend that money again So I think that's part of the challenge. I think there is absolutely a cost issue, uh, a cost dimension to some of these challenges. Mm. Well, and also with, you know, really large organizations, it's very hard to make a change. So you can spend months or practically years having a very small change implemented uh, and, and having it become part of the culture of that organization. And then trying to make many, many, many small changes is exhausting. It's totally exhausting. And that is also a big theme that emerged from a lot of these conversations is the realization that this work is incremental because just as you say, working in big companies and changing the culture, changing the practices takes a really long time. And I part of my journey with BP was realizing that even though I was doing really progressive, cutting edge, amazing, innovative work 
around the projects that I worked on in Indonesia and in China and working with colleagues around the world, we didn't reach every project in the company. And we didn't manage to change the whole company and the way that it operated. And I think that the question has to be asked, if you've got a company that's operating in 100 countries with 100,000 employees, it's going to take a long time to change that organization. Well, it's almost like by the time you've made the changes, there's a whole new set of technology, there's a whole new set of workers, there's a whole new set of, of people behind that, that that are, you know, pushing for something that's slightly different again. So do you feel like larger companies are perpetually in a state of evolution or are larger companies trying to control that evolution? Mm, Good question. I think it depends on the industry to some extent. I mean, if you look at oil and gas and mining companies, in some ways their business model, the way that they do what they do, hasn't changed that much in that if you're mining – You go and you dig a big hole in the ground and you get the stuff out. And what has changed is this realization that you can't just shut out the community around you, right? So the way that a lot of companies used to operate, and unfortunately the way that some still do, is to say, okay, we're going to throw up a big fence, metaphorically and physically, and just try to shut out the world around us and just get on with our business. But what's that expression, show me a 10-foot fence and I'll show you an 11-foot ladder? I think that that companies have realized you, you can't do that. And so I think over the past, I'll say 20 years, um, it has started to change in that mining companies, oil and gas companies are realizing that actually the best safety perimeter is a community that is aligned with your goals of getting an operation up and running and having it operate safely. Nobody wants social turmoil around these projects. And so what I was trying to do in Indonesia was work with the community so that their interests were aligned with ours. Is there a problem with working with communities, especially in in, uh, countries that have a very strong you know, autocratic leaders or, or chiefs almost, uh, where you go in and you say, hey, we, we, how can we help your community? How can we help your, your, your people? And they just say, look, we don't, don't believe in you. You've got a bad track record. And you just run up against a big, big wall. Is that all about the humanization of an organization and, and have somebody representing that has power behind them and saying, okay, we will make these changes, but we can't do all the things that you would like to do because some of them are just quite frankly ridiculous. Yeah, I think that there are a few issues at play. I mean, one, as you say, is that the governments are neglecting their duties, right? So particularly when a company goes into a remote environment, as I did in Indonesia, the government was simply not there to a large extent, Right? So the communities out there had been neglected. There weren't adequate educational or health facilities. And part of the problem is that when a company comes into a really remote location that has been neglected by their national government, communities start seeing dollar signs flash and they think the company is just a big ATM machine. And they expect the company to take on the role of government, which is inappropriate and it's unsustainable. 
So part of the challenge that I faced out there on that particular project was that, of course, we wanted to help the local community and help meet some of these urgent needs, and we did. But we didn't want to take on the role of government. And so we were trying to work with government to help put some gradual transition plans in place, but that was full of challenges. So to build a school when the government's not going to pay the teacher's salary isn't great, right? And then to say, okay, well, we'll pay the teacher salary for three years, but you really got to come in after that. Are they actually going to come in and step up after three years? Who knows? So you get into these sort of traps of the community being dependent on the company, the government saying, okay, well, the company is going to take care of this. I don't have to do anything. And you get into these very dangerous traps. So how do you avoid them? Well, we tried to work with partners like the World Bank, who can work with governments, and we're seen as an independent third party. Um, but it came up a lot in lots of different dimensions. I mean, also trying to be careful about when we were hiring locally, which was so important, to actually not poach all of the local talent so that local organizations then had no human capital on their own. So really complicated dynamics when you're talking about a company coming to into a remote environment. Well, then let's let's flip it on its head and 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 talk about companies that have gone into place. Well, let's say Canada. I mean, that's a it's a relatively supported uh, society with with uh, government, even though some people feel that it's not. <laughs> um, but you know, based to that scenario you were just talking, it is you know it's a yin yang situation. Um, and, and and organizations going in and saying, hey, you know, we've got these resources, we want to help out and building up, but yet still not being able to connect with everybody. Is it always going to be there's going to be 10% of a society that is never going to be satisfied and they're a little bit reactionary compared to the 10% of the other end of the scale that just doesn't give a damn? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, you you can't please everybody. We as individuals can't please any everybody and certainly companies can't please everybody. So in some ways, I don't think that necessarily has to be the goal that you please 100% of the population. But what I think companies do have to do is make sure that they are reaching out to the most vulnerable populations. So reaching out to indigenous peoples, making sure that people who are these self-appointed leaders of a community that, for example, you're not just talking to the men. So we had women-only consultations to make sure that we were hearing concerns of other, of other parts of the community. So I think that's just it, Bob. You can't please everybody, but I think you still need to try to make sure that you're at least in communication with everybody. Mm. Well, it's, it's almost like a due diligence syndrome where, you know, it's never going to be a perfect uh, scenario at the end of the day and you just got to be able to when you when you finally the contract ends and you walk away did you do as much as you could as a human being to help these other human beings through this transition or or change and some of times it's a very upheaval change that they're experiencing yeah i think that's right bob and i think it's making sure that 
that it's not just dependent on one really nice person in the company, that there are actually processes in place that are institutionalized. So we were saying before that, you know, there can be a lot of turnover in a company and in a community. And so, for example, companies should have processes in place where they're doing due diligence, where they have community consultation as simply a regular part of what they do so that you're not reinventing the wheel all the time and that, again, it's not just dependent on one person's goodwill, that this is actually part of how the company does business. Well, I would also seem if uh, if you have something like that in place, it's a lot easier to re- to be reactionary to situations instead of saying, oh my goodness, we have a crisis or a potential crisis. Let's talk about it for six months and figure out a process instead of saying, great, that's plan B14, implement. Exactly. That's exactly right. And um, one of the chapters in the book is about my time supporting a United Nations initiative on business and human rights. And it was led by a Harvard professor named John Ruggie, who did a lot of consultation. And one of the stories that he likes to tell a lot is that I, I cite in the book is when he went to go visit a community at a mine in South America and things had gotten really bad there. Relationships had really deteriorated deteriorated between the community and the company. Uh, You know, the community had blockaded the only access road into the mine. The mine manager predictably freaked out, called the police. Stones were thrown. Shots were fired. People got hurt. So John Ruggie went to meet with the community leader separately and said, well, why why did you block the road? I mean, how did this escalate? And they said something like, well, you know, these guys from the mine, they would drive through our village way too fast and kick up lots of dust. <laughs> and he said, what? what? <laughs> like, people have gotten hurt here. That, that, that doesn't sound so egregious. And the community leader said to him, well, the company wouldn't listen to us when we had small problems. So we had to create a big one. So as you say, Bob, if companies aren't scanning the horizon, looking to catch problems before they escalate, they're creating some really perverse incentives for the way that people are going to interact with them. Is a lot of it driven by budget? Yes, I think some of it is. I think some of it is. And I have really mixed feelings about the quote-unquote business case. You hear a lot about people having to make the business case for sustainability or for human rights or for corporate responsibility. And I, I think that it's sort of a fraught exercise. I mean, I get it. You have to justify your spend. But as we were talking about before, part of this is preventative. So it's it's hard to say, well, okay, if we spend this much now, this is exactly how much we're going to save later. But I also, I don't want to go too far down that road because if you have a conversation with a company where you're saying, okay, if I hire uh, 12 people to serve as my community liaison officers, I really think that this is going to prevent us from being involved in crimes against humanity and being involved in genocide and torture. If we go too far down the business case road, I don't want somebody coming back to me and saying, okay, well, if I only hire six community liaison officers, does that mean there's a 50% chance that we're going to be involved in genocide? Right? I think, I think at some point you have to say, look, this is how we're going to do business. This is simply part of our costs of doing business. And this is the way that we operate. And this cannot be compromised. Yeah, it, it cannot be uh, 
Well, it, it, basically what you talked about was a, as a bean counter scenario where their job, their task is to try mm. and save money. And it's almost like you want to say, look, at this is outside of that purview. It's I know you don't like the sound of that, but if you want us to create um, harmony within a specific community, there can't be any of this nickel and diming after the fact that we've implemented because then there's a trust issue. And that's really all you're trying to do. You're going in there to create schools. You're not going in there to improve the conditions for uh, water or, or anything like that or even roads. You're going in there as a trust issue so that community can say, you know what, you know, they've tried their best and yeah, they mess up every now and again, but they they listen to us and we're working together to make things better. That costs money. And then if you come back, you know, six months later or a year later and say, well, you know, we don't have as much money, so guess what? We're not going to do it. Then it's going to be like, uh-oh, all that money that you spent beforehand gets flushed down the toilet instantly because yep. they're just sitting there waiting for you to do something like that. So I think, you know, is that reality... Uh, part of the corporate uh, ethos or is that something that they just haven't quite got yet? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, I, part of the challenge of this conversation is that you can put some numbers on some of the worst case scenarios. So when I was working in Indonesia, I was working on a BP project in West Papua, which is at the eastern tip of the country. Uh, ExxonMobil had a similar facility in Aceh, uh, at the western part of the country. And they had to shut down for four months because of basically the civil war going around their project uh, going on in that area that some people accused the company of exacerbating in a U.S. lawsuit filed in federal court. Um, and there were some estimates that that shutdown cost the company anywhere from $100 million to $350 million. So I think that's a pretty good case for saying, okay, well, we don't want that to happen, do we? But then you can say, well, isn't that just Aceh? Isn't that just, there's a civil war that's been going on there forever. And that clearly won't happen to us, will it? So I think there have been some cases where you can model the downside, but I think the upside hasn't been modeled very well either. So there are some cases where some studies that show that, okay, companies that invest more in sustainability um, are returning actually more to their shareholders over the long haul. There have been some studies that say that. But as you know, Bob, with studies, there are also some studies that say the opposite. <laughs> so I don't, think, I, I don't think there are definitive rulings about how much is the right amount amount to spend on sustainability and human rights. Again, at some point, this is going to be a value judgment. Well, you know, that, that I think you put in a very good point of value judgment and, and shareholders where there is, you know, opportunities uh, to classify an organization as uh, something that's ethical and have certain stuff in place, kind of basically what you're talking about here in your book. Mm -hmm. uh, and that actually affects the bottom line in a very fundamental way where shareholders are buying into the company and investing into the company because of that specific fact that yes. then you get, you know, there, there's a whole, I was talking to an investor the other day and, he, he, and I said, well, what about ethical, ethical investors? And he said, holy cow, have I got some companies for you? Basically, mm -hmm. they're going in and saying, 
you shouldn't be investing in this particular development company or oil company or mining company. Uh, you should be investing in these mining companies because they're more ethical and they have all these things in place. And a lot of money is leaving one area and going to another area. Absolutely, Bob. And I think that it it does make intuitive sense, doesn't it? That if a company is managing these issues well, managing issues of the environment and of human rights, and as we talked about before, scanning the horizon for potential problems before they arise, doesn't that intuitively make sense that they're just going to be a better managed company in all sorts of ways? Well, I would think you would have a company that's more harmonic and, you know, we I've, I've uh, reviewed lots and lots of books and, and really... A lot of it is if you want to be profitable, you want to have your staff happy and feel that they're they're not a cog in a wheel, but part of the solution. Mm-hmm. So for sure, I think if you have a company that's listening to people outside of the company, they should definitely be listening to people inside the company as well. That's right, Bob. And I that's part of why I joined BP in the first place, because at the time, the CEO, John Brown, had become the first head of a major energy company to acknowledge the realities of climate change and urge action. And he was equally progressive about human rights. And I thought, my goodness, this is a different kind of oil man. And he's trying to create a different kind of energy company. And that's a guy I want to work for. And this is the company I want to work for. And I know a lot of people who join the company for the same reasons. Well, you know, it is, it's, that's one of the dreams of, of, I would think, everybody that, that works for an organization is work for an organization, organization you're proud of and one you're excited to work for because then it's not going to work. It's going to fulfill your life. And uh, I wish more large organizations uh, would kind of have that philosophy where their workers would be basically banging down the door. I want to work for you, not because you have a ton of, of money to offer me and some great benefits. It's because you'll make me feel that I am not wasting my life because a person spends a tremendous amount of life of their life uh, in a career in an organization and if that organization's not that great then why am I doing this type of thing that's right and that's actually the arc of the book is that I joined BP so excited about this company and so idealistic about the mark I was going to make on the world. And I really saw it happen on these projects in Indonesia and in China and working with colleagues around the world. But then, to be honest, Bob, it was after the Deepwater Horizon disaster that I thought to myself, hang on a second. <laughs> what, mm. what impact did I make? And that's when I started to talk to all these other people who have worked in big companies and really try to reflect on, okay, if I'm working in one of these behemoth organizations, what impact can I really have? And it took a while, but what I came around to was, okay, this is what this work is like. I still think I did really great work in Indonesia and in China and in some of these other countries. But again, part of this work is that big companies take a long time to change and there are going to be lots of different pockets of culture in different pieces of the company. And talking to my friends who work in apparel companies after the tragic Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh, they went through similar sort of ups and downs of thinking, wait a second, we've made progress on improving labor conditions and supply chains over the past 20, 30 years but we just killed 1,100 people. 
in a heartbeat. And so what does it mean? And again, these issues take a long time to change. So of all the people that I talked to and for myself, it was realizing that we are making tiny, tiny steps, but that at least we're moving in the right direction. And sometimes it feels like we take an enormous step backward, but we still have to have faith that we're making progress. And so, for example, one person that I talked to in the book, he works for an apparel company and he was visiting suppliers in India. And then the guy who was taking him around to factories uh, said, okay, I just want to show you this one other factory. It's not on our list, but just so you get a sense of what else is out there. And they walked into this factory and it was producing for the domestic market. It was not an international supplier. He said he walked in, it was filthy. There were kids working there. And of course, it was a horrific sight and opens up this whole other Pandora's box of, okay, what do we do about companies that don't have international pressure to bear? But he thought, well... If these are what the factories that are supplying us looked like 20 or 30 years ago, we actually have made some progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's always a, you know, you're never going to get to 100% of everything. And a lot of it is, you know, you get corrupt government or you get corrupt businessmen or or, or people that just don't get it. And and they're not doing it out of malice. They're just ignorant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think by having people like you in place and and more and more people uh, inside organizations fighting, because, I mean, it's kind of pointless fighting an organization from the outside all the time. You've got to have people that are sympathizing on the inside so you have the ability to actually have a conversation. So the people that are frustrated outside actually have somebody that's willing to listen to them inside and get what they're trying to get at and be kind of almost like a a translator, if anything else. Exactly. That's exactly the right word, Bob. And I talk to a lot of people who definitely see that as part of their role. And it actually, it, it's part of what makes this work hard, too, because people outside of the company sometimes assume that you're just shilling for the man, right? And then inside the company, people sort of look at you and go, well, hang on, who's, whose side are you on anyway? Um, but, but people do see that as part of their role as serving that translator or bridge function. Well, I mean, yeah, that would be the biggest challenge is, is you know, stuck stuck between a, a, a tough spot and, and, a, and a hard place because basically, you know, you're hated by everybody. It's almost like being an account manager. It's like, yes, 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 we can do that for you. And then you come to the company and say, yeah, we're going to do all this. And they go, are you nuts? We can't do that. And say, but that's what I said I was going to do. He said, well, you're crazy. Go back and tell them no. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, tiptoeing through a minefield. Yes. And I talked to, I, in addition to interviewing people in companies, I interviewed a number of the advocates that I've gotten to know over the years. And that was a lot of fun, actually, because these are folks that I have sat across the table uh, with or from for years, but never actually talked to them about how they felt about their work and how they framed their work for themselves. And some of them actually, uh, you know, I, I, some of them, I've seen them come in in a sort of adversarial mode, but they do actually see their role as creating more space inside the company for people like me to do what they do, that they can push the envelope, they can make public statements that they know might be a little bit extreme, but again, they help create space for people internally to do what they do. I thought that was a fascinating insight. Well, you know, it, and it's interesting because, you know, 
you're not really talking about a, a, a revolution inside an organization. You're talking about a very subtle evolution. And evolution takes time to develop and, and permeate into an organization. I mean, that's the only way that I think it would ever work. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever get frustrated that this is taking too long? <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. All the time. And I talked to a number of people in the book who did eventually just give up and say, you know what, this is, this is too slow. I'm, I got to get out of here and do something different. And I think that we still, you know, we need people inside companies. We need those people banging on the door outside. We need people working on policy and regulation. We need people working to overthrow the system. And so I think that the choice, I get a lot of people asking me, well, where, if I really want to have a positive impact on the world, should I go work at a company? Should I go work at Amnesty International? Should I go work in government? What should I do? And I think that that choice is deeply personal. I think we all thrive in different environments and we just need to choose, well, where right now, given what my skills are, what kind of environment I want to work in, where do I think I'll be most effective? And that might change over time. Yeah, you know, you've got it, it all. It's like you said, it's an individual's choice. And, uh, you know, some individuals are a little spaced out when it comes to stuff like this and have no <laughs> idea what's going on. Uh, some of them are blindly, you know, working for a company and, and the company's not doing nice things, but they refuse to admit that because if they did, then they would. it would be horrific for them to see. So they won't face the reality because they're too scared to face the reality and the consequences that might happen to them psychologically. Um, so a lot of it is pr- people protecting themselves. Uh, but in the long run, it, it doesn't protect them at all. I think that's right. That's really nicely put, Bob. I talked to one advocate and I, I asked her, do you think you could ever work in a company? And she said, you know, I don't think I could because I don't think that personally I could handle the feeling that I was complicit in some of these problems, even if I was part of trying to fix them. And I said, wow, that's really, that's really poignant. Could I use that in the book? And she said, well, yes, but I'd appreciate it if you didn't use my name because I feel like I would actually go work for a company someday if I could find the right one that actually fit with my values. So I, I put that whole exchange in the book um, because I, I think you're right, Bob. I think at some point those of us who care deeply about our planet and about future generations do have to think about what are the impacts that I have every day in what I do, both at work, or as you say, we spend so much of our waking hours, but also as an investor and as a consumer and as a citizen, what impact am I having? What legacy am I leaving? Mm. Well, and also as a parent, I think you could be doing, if you know, if, if parents are just a little bit more proactive and instead of telling their children to do stuff, say, hey, look what I'm doing. Isn't that cool? You should check it out. Uh, I think that's a very, very good way to teach your children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope so. I have two, I have a young son and daughter, and um, I suppose part of why I wrote this book is that I hope that as they're making their way through the world, whether they decide to work for companies or not, they will certainly interact with companies uh, for most of their lives, whether, again, as customers or uh, investors or whatever. And I hope that that both they will be thoughtful about it, but that it's not that hard to be thoughtful about it anymore because right now there is so much information out there, but it's really overwhelming. I mean, even doing what I do, Bob, I try to stop once in a while 
and just take an inventory. So I'll just stop for a second and say, okay, what am I wearing right now? (laughs) How many brands am I wearing? What's in my bag? And what do I know about these brands? And so I'll list them. And it's actually, you're actually, you know, wearing quite a lot. I mean, socks and shoes and, (laughs) and everything. And I don't know that much about these brands. And when I try to look, it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the information out there. And this is what I do for a living. So I think it's hard to make informed choices, but I hope that it gets easier. I wanted to ask you, you know, you've interviewed all these people and and you're putting the book together. Was there a crystallization? Was there an aha moment for you where something became a core truth for you? Yes. And it was this notion of incrementalism. And I'd never really thought about it like that before. You know, I worked for BP for nine years And again, I joined as an incredibly idealistic, change the world, do it from a huge company perspective. And again, the projects that I worked on were so innovative. And I really thought it was, it was almost revolutionary what we were doing there. But then again, after Deepwater Horizon and after thinking really deeply about, well, what impact have I had? And talking to friends who work at The Gap and talking to friends who work in technology companies who are struggling with these challenges to privacy that they face. It really was this notion of incrementalism that kept occurring over and over and over again. And that was really the aha for me to say, okay, Doing this work, working in or with big companies, pushing for safer, more responsible practices, it is incremental. And so it it does sound so obvious, doesn't it, in retrospect, that you can't move these big super tanker companies so quickly. But for me, that was really the aha, is that to go do this work uh, means embracing that you're not going to change it overnight. Mm. Well, I think it's a career. It's like you can't go into an organization and say, hey, you know, I'm going to change it. It's like in my career, in this organization, if I'm able to find 10 people that think like me and we can start a committee that gathers and get more people with the same thinking over the next 20, 30 years, that is my goal. And that's what I'm going to shoot for. Do you think that's more of a realistic way of approaching this? Yeah, I think that's right. And then I think you also make sure that you're seeking out moments of meaningful change and that you're looking for those. I'll I'll share with you one story, Bob, that when I first got to China, uh, I was working on a joint venture between BP and Sinopec, one of China's state energy companies. And my first week there, I sat in on a meeting and it was, you know, half of the BP guys and half of the Sinopec guys looking over the latest projections for the budget and the timeline and all the stats for the project. And there was one line on the spreadsheet uh, and the number was eight but the label hadn't been translated into English yet and so my BP colleague said "Uh, what's that line and the one of the Sinopec guys said oh that's the projected number of fatalities and he said excuse me and he said yeah and uh, this kind of a project this big a project this many man hours uh, we expect eight fatalities and my colleague said um the target is not eight. The target is zero. And the Sinopec guy said, well, that's not realistic. (laughs) And he said, well, if you set an expectation, if you set a target of killing eight people, you're probably going to kill at least eight people. 
And so they went back and forth. And of course, I was appalled. And then I realized, well, he is basing this on his experience of how these projects usually go in China. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And so we did. We set the target at zero and we didn't kill any people. But (laughs) I mean, what an amazing story in that this is where the expectations were. And to just move those, it, it took a lot of work. But, you know, those were some lives saved. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very interesting. That it kind of goes back to um, the, the bean counter mentality to stuff like this where they dehumanize it and say, well, you know, the, mm. the average is eight. So if we go below that, that's great. If we go above that, that's bad. And next time we'll try and do better. Um, and a lot of that's based on productivity. Uh, profitability it's like well we're gonna have to push the meeting we're gonna have to push it forward because we're gonna run out of time and that's when mistakes happen and if a mistakes happen one of the consequences are people get killed um but you know stuff like that works in the real world too i mean you go into a um a big chemical factory that's been running for many 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 years and there are accidents there may be not that many fatalities but there can be very very bad accidents that happen Mm -hmm. all the time and in a, in a car manufacturing or, or in anywhere where there's large pieces of equipment moving or even in a place like Home Depot where there's stuff stacked very, very high, mm-hmm. there's potential for an accident. In all those companies, they don't have something, well, what can we do to stop killing people? They probably have something that's like safety procedures within the organization. Mm-hmm. But I think all that stuff is based on budget. Right, we, we're only going to spend so much money on health and safety because that's what we've allotted as a budget, and they don't know if that's enough enough money. But you can't give it a uh, you can't give it uh, a, an infinite amount of budget because then what you do is you introduce corruption. Because as soon as people see an infinite amount, then people will manipulate it because that's just human nature. Unless you get very lucky and have a perfect organization, so it's a very hard road between having enough money in place so that you don't have to think about how many people are we not going to kill and how many people are we not going to maim uh, for budgetary reasons. And I think that's that's part of the dehumanization of, of a lot of the, or, uh, not organizations, but approaches, is people have got too much into figures and data. And by looking at figures and data, it dehumanizes it. In, in your, sorry for going on forever, but... In your experience and stuff like that, do you think that that's uh, one of the major problems? I suppose it could be. I mean, I think that there are some industries that get it more than others, right? So we talked about how oil and gas and mining companies have figured out that if the community blockades your only access road, um, that's not very good for business. A lot of apparel companies are realizing that if you treat your workers better, their productivity goes up and their turnover goes down. So I think there are some industries that are getting it. I'm just pondering what you just said, Bob, about the this interesting idea that if you have an unlimited amount of money, that that attracts corruption. And I suppose I'm, I'm wondering if that's the case. I mean, I don't know at this point if I've seen any companies spend too much money on trying to protect human rights. Yeah, I don't think it, it ends up that way. I think what it is is they they go into an into a country 
and they say, hey, we've got this massive budget and we're going to throw oh, money here and there. And then the mm-hmm. peoples that are in power, it's all the trickle-down theory. It's like, oh, great, well, I own all these schools, so this is where it should go. It's, oh, I it, see. You know. yeah. Yeah. So it's that type of corruption. I mean, if you have a teeny tiny budget, then that stuff kind of, yeah, we don't, we don't care about that because look at all these other big stacks of money that we can go after. Because in the end of the day, that's a lot of time what happens in, in when you're going into countries like that. It's a money grab. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean, Bob. And I think I think part of how you mitigate against that risk is trying to have third party partners, whether they're international NGOs or even leveraging your home government. Right. So a U.S. company going overseas or a U.K. company going overseas can sometimes call on the support of their home government, of their embassies abroad, um, you know, or other non-governmental organizations that can help sort of monitor the situation and mitigate some of that risk. Mm. Yeah, well, it's almost like the you do the flip side. What was something that was very, very interested in happening is in Canada, just before uh, Hong Kong was handed back over to China, there were, we had this open door policy and uh, there were so many people applying for Canadian visas that they actually were given the freight elevator in the building to get people up and down. And they had a lobby for 2,000 people, which was packed every single day. And what the government did is they went to these people and they said, oh yeah, I've got $250,000. I'm going to invest in Canada to get my permit to come to Canada and work and live in Canada. You know, no problem. And they would say, great. And you haven't filled out this part of the form that shows that you've been paying taxes for the last 15 years. And... Mm. (laughs) <laughs> there was lots and lots and lots of people that got caught with their pants down on that little thing, figuring, oh, well, that's nothing. The Canadian government demanded that they show paperwork proving that they'd pay the back. And then people would go and they'd pay all their back tax. And then they would come back and the Canadian government would look at it and says, ah, you just paid all your back taxes. Yes, sorry, that's a disqualifying thing. You are no longer to apply. And it really shook up the business community. And really what Canada was trying to say in that case is like, sure, you can come in Canada and yes, you can open a business, but you can't run it the way you've been running your business in China because that isn't the way that we, we like to run businesses here in Canada. So um, that was a, you know brought probably forward by somebody that's like you within the uh, embassies of the government of Canada saying, look, we're, we're talking about giving citizenships away here for money. And I know it seems like a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money for a lot of these people. And we're trying to make it available to the average Joe as well, just not to the rich. And, of course, Hong Kong didn't collapse, and and a lot of those people now have left Canada and gone back but left their families here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, very – I found it was a fascinating story about when you're in a situation like that where you can really – there's a stick and a carrot situation, and you can actually make the people that are corrupt – have to do things that they don't want to do because what the alternative is is definitely something they don't want to have happen in their life. Right, right. And I think the other point that that demonstrates, Bob, is just how complex the world is and that inane statement. But I think also when we're talking about corporate responsibility or sustainability, the role of governments cannot be ignored. Right. I mean, we, you know, we think about companies as causing all these problems, being part of all these problems or being the solution. But the role of government is so important, right, that government still for all of the corporate, quote unquote, power, government still create and pass laws and enforce them however they see fit. Exactly. 
Um, what about uh, how people should approach this book? I mean, it, it, it's more of a, I don't call it a storybook, but it, it's based on wonderful, wonderful stories and, and anecdotes and stuff like that. Is it a book that they can jump around in or should they read it cover to cover? <laughs> well, I think people can approach it however they like because it is it is a story, so it does follow my career chronologically. But what I've been careful to do so that it is very accessible is that each chapter is a place that I've been, but also emphasizes a theme. So I think if somebody's particularly interested in one theme, they can go ahead and jump to that chapter. So my experience in China that I was talking about before, working on a BP joint venture with one of China's state energy companies, the theme of that chapter is making the case. And there I weave in lots of stories from other people in other companies who talk about making the case for sustainability or human rights inside their organizations. Uh, One chapter is about my time in London and BP headquarters when uh, John Brown stepped down as CEO and Tony Hayward came in. And the theme there is tone at the top because everybody knows how important leadership is in a company. So if that's a theme that somebody's interested in, they can jump into that. Um, so there are themes that I think if, if people are particularly interested in, they can they can go ahead and, and jump around here and there. But there is an arc to it. You know, you've got um, you've also got a lot of resources at the back of the book. You know, end notes, resources, acknowledgments, this index. Uh, it's really a a book that also promotes knowledge. I would think because once you've gone through it, it's ah, what was that part? You can actually get to the parts that are good to quote in meetings and things like that. Good, Bob. I do hope so. I mean, that that was really what I was hoping to achieve is that I wanted to make it a personal story so that it is compelling, it's interesting, it's hopefully fun in some places. But yes, I'm writing about this really important global issue of how do we make companies work in the best interests of society and of the planet. And so I wanted to provide a lot of resources to help people do that. Now, where can people go to learn more and uh, keep keep going? Oh, sure. Well, there are an increasing number of um, great websites for more information. Uh, there's a nonprofit whose board I serve on called the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. That's business-humanrights.org. It's a terrific hub of information, and you can search it by company, by country, by issue, by industry, and they post all sorts of stories, reports, news items about companies, but they also solicit responses from companies about those items. And if the company responds, they post it in full. They're a shoestring staff, so they don't do any sort of editorializing or editing or pulling quotes out of context. They really do want to be a platform for information. So I think that's one great resource. Um, I also serve as a human rights advisor to BSR, formerly Business for Social Responsibility, and they're a membership organization uh, of companies around the world, but they also have lots of papers, uh, they have a, a blog, and so there's lots of resources on their website as well. So those are those are two good places to start. And then my final question is, what can people that listen to the show do today to work within their organization, even if it's a small, uh, you know, a two-person company or they're working in a large organization that has thousands of people, what can they do today other than buying your book? <laughs> 
Sure. Well, that's that's of course the first step, Bob. Um, but the second one, I think, uh, well, like we talked about a little while ago, just take a pause and think. Okay, what are the top three or five or ten tensions that my company has with the best interests of society? Where might I be working against? the best interests of some community or community of interest or stakeholder group. And on the flip side, where does my company best contribute to somebody's well-being? And so I think just to to have a good think about what those issues are, call in some help if you need it because there are people who think about this all the time. But as we talked about Bob, I think the first step is being aware of your company's impact on the world. I think that's the most important place to start. The evolution of a corporate idealist when girl meets oil. Christine, thank you very much for coming on the show. I had a fantastic time, and I think it was a very enlightening uh, message that you have. I hope so, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe, leave comments, or make a request on our website, businessbooktalk.com. See you next week.